This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Indigenous leaders from the United States have traveled all the way to Glasgow, Scotland to confront President Joe Biden at the United Nations COP26 climate meeting. As part of the campaign Build Back Fossil Free, activists are continuing actions that began in Washington, D.C. and are demanding that Mr. Biden make climate justice central to his agenda. One such Indigenous leader is my guest, Dr. Michael Charles. He is a postdoctoral fellow at the Newark Earthworks Center. Joining me now from Glasgow, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So first, tell me what has been happening in Glasgow. Tell me about this action where you and others held up signs. You know, Biden just gave his speech at COP26. Uh, Paint a picture for me and for our audience, if you will. Sure. So COP is um, very gated off in terms of just the entry and access points. So um, everyone is coming in and out of the same area, um, at least those that are they're, uh, badged to, to be here and to observe as, as parties. And so pretty much we were able to take up the spot right in front of that gate uh, and kind of take up the, the street right there. And, and it, was, it was really cool because we had um, indigenous leaders from not just the U.S., but from other parts of the world. We had a lot of U.S.-based people um, telling their stories, both indigenous and not indigenous. Um, giving those stories of local places and, and local impacts, whether it's, uh, you know, the desert areas somewhere in California that's uh, someone growing up next to uh, a natural gas plant, or from someone who has been dealing with pipelines going directly over waterways up in, um, in, in other, other areas north in the U.S. And so it's been quite an interesting time. And, and, and the, the banners and the signs give a visual uh, backdrop which allows us to kind of, you know, then put forward speakers to tell their stories. And so a lot of the actions and, and, and the protests that put together actually do take a lot of, a lot of efforts to really determine how can we tell a story and how can we get people to listen? Um, and it gets harder and harder the more, more and more people you try to involve and, and the louder and louder you want to be to get that story to be heard. And how and so, how yeah. was the how were these actions a continuation from Washington D.C.? Tell me about how you, you and others have essentially followed Biden from the U.S. from the U.S. Capitol all the way to Glasgow. Sure. Yeah. Actions. I mean, actions have occurred and, and they'll continue to occur um, to target not just the Biden administration but the U.S. here at COP, and they have. I, this is. Um, my fifth year of being at these COP negotiations. And so in a lot of ways, Biden even followed us as we've been here um, through a Trump administration, through a Biden administration. The, the, the messages are still here. I think the biggest difference now um, with the Biden administration is that we're not publicly the bad guy in the light of the um, eyes here, here around climate change as much. But it doesn't mean that when you say um, we, you mean the United States. We, yes, sorry, sorry. We, yes, we being the, the United States. Um, and, and that's one thing that I mean, Biden has brought differently with, I mean, since his administration started, is now we start to see people, you know, our enrollment back in the Paris Agreement. We start to see more talks that are promoting um, these fights against climate change. But where the protests connect between DC and, and, and Glasgow, is that there's still a, a simple message. All the, all the protests, the speakers, the chants, the message is we got to still stop approving new fossil fuel projects and we have to declare a climate emergency. 
it's, it's not enough to just talk about it and to say how much we want to fight for the next generation if we're if we're still um, promoting fossil fuel and investing in newer projects uh, that just locks us in <laughs> to to a future that is pretty much the same as what we've been doing and, and the, the issue that got us here in the first place. So let's uh, um, parse that a little bit because the Biden administration, as you've mentioned on the surface, is climate uh, justice friendly. Um, has Biden has talked about making climate the centerpiece of his uh, platform. He has tried to keep it in the Build Back Better legislation, um, but of course facing opposition from his own senators. We've just heard on Tuesday that there's a major agreement on methane uh, reduction and on deforestation, but you're suggesting that the Biden administration is still continuing to approve new fossil fuel projects? Correct. Yeah, there, there are still new projects that are moving forward. Um, and, and there's also a lot of the plans within this uh, Build Back Better campaign that just dance around the issue in terms of the, their greenwashing solutions that essentially allow them to pat themselves on the back, allow them to still extract fossil fuels. Uh, and we, we call these a lot of times in this movement false solutions in the sense of they're really focusing on all of these different mechanisms that can enable them to do business as usual. So whether it's carbon markets, whether it's um, the idea of trading um, carbon emissions so some people can pollute and some can't, or monetizing land that puts other people at target, um, that is where we kind of get all these different false solutions. But yeah, the, the new, new fossil fuel projects are still happening. They're still moving forward. Uh, and so that is, that is the big issue. Is, is the Line 3 project one of those such projects? And if so, connect that to the activism that you're engaged in. Yes. So I'll say personally, I'm actually from a very different part of the country than where Line 3 is going through. But that, that's part of the whole fight is, is we're still relying on Indigenous people to come forward and to make these big statements to put their body on the line to have to actually physically try to stop these pipelines for these um, for these plans to actually move forward. So without uh, with, without stopping something like Line 3 at a presidential or an executive level, they're not rejecting the new fossil fuel projects. They're just kind of allowing business as usual to occur. And so when it comes to the implementation of a project like a big pipeline like Line 3 and connecting that with the speech that he, he made here in COP, it, it doesn't add up. It's talking a lot to look good and pat yourself on the back and, and talk about this is the future we want and here's where we're going to go. And then, you know, right there in our backyard and having the exact opposite happening every day. I mean, it's sort of uh, sad because even the lip service that the Biden administration is paying to climate justice without much action is apparently too much for the corporate elites for the American right wing. Um, you know, it, it seems as though no matter what Biden does or doesn't do, he's going to get criticized. So he might as well take real action. But of course, he can point to the Joe Manchins and Kirsten Cinemas of the political landscape to say, well, they're the ones objecting to his agenda. Outside of legislation, though, there's a lot of executive action he could take, right? You know, Trump demonstrated that you can do a lot with executive power. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, th I think uh, you talk about a good point is, is there's going to be 
criticism either way. It, it is, I mean, he's in a political position and we, we know what politics looks like. We've seen him here at COP year after year. Um, and, and it's the more and more we play this game, we're going to continue to have the same outcome, which has been for years and years trying to still figure out what is the Paris Agreement, what is the rule book. And without any agreement, it leaves something that was as historic as the Paris Agreement null and void. It doesn't do anything. And so the only way that we're actually going to get out of this issue and, and, and recognize a climate crisis and promote solution is by being bold, by, by picking a side and, and moving as, in as ambitiously as possible. And, I, and I, I feel like I also said picking a side as if there wasn't um, there wasn't ways to kind of address these things uh, that, that we need to be bold to actually make these solutions happen and, and to actually dig ourselves out of this crisis. Um, it's not enough to just kind of dance around and, and within the executive position, we saw what happened when, when Trump came in, into office and how many executive orders were signed in the first, I think it was one or two days. There are ways to kind of use that power to start making influence. And, and I think that a lot of times when, when we're talking about what does it mean to move towards justice and to move towards these things, it doesn't necessarily always have to even be um, about, in, you know, the, the actual emissions. It can be about the protections of people. It can be about acknowledging um, the human rights of, of people. And, and it, it goes through so much more than just, you know, whether or not the, the pipeline gets built for using the line three example. It goes through making sure that the people are protected in every single step of the way as they're making their voices heard, as they're telling their story, uh, and as, as they're acting to defend their communities. And that actually leads me to my next question quite well, which is, do you see the pursuit of climate justice at the, at the global level as part of securing indigenous rights worldwide, given especially that the stewardship, the indigenous stewardship of land we now, you know, this widespread consensus is one of the best ways to address climate change. Absolutely. Climate justice cannot be achieved without the secured rights and recognition of indigenous people and indigenous rights as, as collective communities. And, and that's something that here at the at COP has been the core uh, of everything that we've been doing. So let's also talk about what is coming up. The COP26 meeting is long. It's not just a couple of days. It started October 31st. It goes through November 12th. That's nearly two weeks. You've already engaged in these actions, the, um, uh, confronting Biden. Um, and the work, of course, the behind-the-scenes work that these country delegates do will start in earnest very soon to hash out the details of agreements to hash out the follow-up to the um, Paris Accords how will you and others be trying to keep that pressure from the outside and are you being even let into the halls of power yeah that's, that's a great question I think I guess to start with the context is the first two days um, so this is Tuesday, so Monday and Tuesday have been around the World Leaders Summit. There's been a lot more hype about just bringing in high-level politicians from around the world and, and leaders. And so I think the negotiations and the conversations are really just about to start. Uh, and and that's, that's the idea of what's really going to happen versus what is, the, what is the leader in a public speech going to say? And that's where we kind of talk about um, 
how Joe Biden can make a speech and, and at least this talk and how it differs from what's actually happening. And, and so what's going on the rest of the time we're here, there's going to continue to be meetings inside and outside the halls of the UN. And, and a lot of us do have access to certain rooms, certain halls at certain times. And so we actually are part of a, um, a indigenous people constituency. So a lot of the work I'm actually able to, to do here this year is, is kind of to help and support a formal caucus of uh, indigenous leaders from across the world. And that's what has been amazing in terms of however the negotiations turn out, we're still building community, we're still building resistance, and now it's just on a global scale. And that should be where the real power is coming from. And I think it's important to understand that while some people are in here negotiating with officials, like meeting with state departments, you know, telling them our demands, trying to be heard, whether or not they listen, we have just as many people, if not more, and probably a lot more that are outside creating art, organizing, mobilizing people, trying to find ways to make our voices loud to ensure the demands are understood and to continue to build these relationships. And I think the, for the bigger and bigger scale we're getting with the community that we're building, on those on the ground, we will just be able to continue to fight and continue to build hope uh, for the future generations. And in fact, tell me about the connections that you're making with other indigenous leaders from around the world. Um, I'm sure there's First Nations folks from Canada, but there's, you know, so many, every country almost has its indigenous people and tribes. Uh, can you give me a sense of the connections you're making with folks from around the world in what seems to be this growing global indigenous led movement? Absolutely. This is the place to continue to build because we're here. Uh, and, and I think what, as I mentioned, we, ha we have a caucus of indigenous people that meet every day. And, and I would say, I mean, I know, I, I'll say the formal numbers are limited capacity to meet in our room every day is 100. And so there's leaders coming from all over the world. I know specifically myself, I've been part of what's called the Agricultural Forum. Um, and, and the dialogue as one of one of the caucus's representatives and, and you know, the person that I'm talking with every day is from, from the Amazon, is indigenous to the Amazon, Latin America. Uh, and, and so every day we're building close connections and, and, and it's really beautiful to see. I, I remember one of our, um, one of our Pacific relatives, uh, their, their, their Maori was, was talking about how every time that they meet Arctic indig indigenous peoples, that there's an immediate connection because they are related through water. And, and as we talk about climate change, the, the ice caps and, and the Arctic um, front that, that's melting there is the reason that the increased floods are happening in the Pacific. And when we talk about the sea level rise, there's this very specific connection between people in the Pacific and people in the Arctic, even though they're about a world away. Um, and when we talk about, talk about Earth, and so that's one of the most beautiful things here is building those relationships, continuing to build them, you know, personally outside of COP from year after year. It's, and it's amazing to see the incoming youth and the incoming new indigenous people and how many also elders and, and people we've had year after year, just holding it down here um, within the UN and just continuing to teach. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about indigenous people and their knowledge is it's meant to be passed on from generation to generation. And I think every year we see the, the building of a new generation here when we talk about kind of these, these climate negotiations. And so 
yeah, it, it's just really a beautiful family that we continue to build and, and it just gets stronger and stronger. Well, I want to thank you so much, Michael, for joining us today. Uh, good luck to you over the next uh, week and a half or so at COP26. Thank you so much. My guest has been Dr. Michael Charles. He is a Diné Navajo and postdoctoral fellow at the Newark Earthworks Center, joining me from Glasgow, Scotland, where the UN COP26 meeting is currently taking place. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website at risingupwithsonali.com by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RU with Sonali.